do sit down. And as Paul was saying, uh, we're for the last time in uh, Luke chapter 22, page 1059. 1059. You may like to uh, take up the uh, small little sermon sheet that uh, we've got printed there for you to help you take notes. Yes, uh, a number of us have uh, had to write CVs recently, sometimes for the first time, sometimes for the nth time. And if you were going to write a CV for the post of uh, leader of uh, God's church, you certainly wouldn't include the events that we're looking at tonight, would you? It would be like sort of uh, committing application suicide. You're showing the world that, well, actually, you, you're going for a job that, well, you failed in the past that your allegiance and your confidence in the brand that you're actually wanting to take the job of proclaiming to the world, well, actually, at one stage in time, you didn't have that confidence and you didn't believe in it. And yet, you know what, as, as these events happened, and even before they happened, Jesus said they would happen. And in spite of these events, Jesus chose Peter, Simon Peter, to lead his church. And that he did so gives us great confidence straight up in two ways. The first confidence that we should have is in the inspiration of Scripture, that the Bible is inspired by God. I mean, let's just face it, uh, no one would make up a story like this, would you? Especially in the uh, early days of the church, no one would write this about the leader of the church, would you? I mean, too much is at stake for you to say that the leader that you've got, well, one stage, he denied Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I think it gives us huge confidence in living the Christian life and in facing times when yours and my faith is tested. That's surely going to happen if we are genuine believers in Jesus, if we're going to want to live and breathe for Jesus every moment of every day, in every situation, and before every person that we come across. Those times of testing will come. They're part and parcel of the everyday Christian authentic experience. So let's look at our main passage tonight. It's the centre of the three passages, Luke 22, 54 to 62. And as we do so, let's just note the context as we draw to the end of this chapter. Over the past few weeks, we've uh, look through the chapter, and as we've seen these events sort of unfold, we've seen, well, I think three main themes that keep on coming back and back. The first of them is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus as he controls events. Underneath it all, Jesus goes forward in his time, at his pace, in his control to his death. We've seen, too, the work of Satan desperately trying to derail God's plan of salvation. And we've seen alongside that, thirdly, the weakness of Jesus' disciples constantly mucking it up, constantly getting it wrong. And so, uh, while Satan uh, enters Judas right the way back at the beginning of chapter 22 in verse 3, Judas plans to betray Jesus, and he goes on to do that in verse 47. 
And yet, Jesus knows it all before it happens. He tells his disciples what lies ahead. He knows it all. And he tries to prepare them for it in that upper room. Verse 14 onwards of the chapter, uh, Jesus began to highlight that he is the Passover lamb par excellence. He is the one to whom the Passover lamb of the Exodus points to. It is through his body, verse 19, that is given for you that people will be reconciled with God. It is through his blood that is poured out that the new covenant with God is going to be sealed. And then straight on after that, the disciples get it wrong again, don't they? They don't know what Jesus is about. They, they haven't got a right view of who Jesus is and the kingdom that he is bringing in. And so they start talking about who's going to be the greatest. Again, showing that, well, they're so weak, just like you and me. And then verse 31, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Satan's desire to sift Peter, or Simon as he calls him here, surely showing that, uh, yes, his name may have been called Peter, but he's far from a rock. And then 36, just before they leave the upper room, uh, Jesus warns them to be on their guard. To be on their guard. And yet, as they leave for the Mount of Olives, where Jesus prays, he himself resists Satan, but his disciples don't pray. They are weak. Jesus himself resists those tempting alternatives to the cross. But his disciples don't pray and they don't resist Satan. And that's exactly what we see, don't we? Time and again, last week and this week again, the weakness of Jesus' disciples. Last week, verse 47 to 53, we saw uh, Judas leading that arresting party just as Jesus said he would. And the disciples getting on and doing what they thought was right without even asking Jesus what to do. And then just as that passage ended, we were reminded again that darkness reigned. God was in control. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. But God allowed Satan and all who reject Jesus to arrest him and send him to, yes, his death. But that was God's plan. That then is the background to our passage. Satan's work, the disciples' failings, but Jesus in control. And it's with that in mind and with those predictions in our minds that we come to our passage tonight. And let's note first off that we see a faith that stutters. Jesus is arrested, verse 53, before that. And then verse 54 Uh, He is taken off to the courtyard of the high priest's house. Peter, at least for now, follows like a loyal disciple, but at a distance. Not too close so that he's associated with Jesus, but not too far away so that he he loses sight of Jesus. Verse 55, a, a fire is lit in the courtyard and the arresting party, they sit down together beside the fire. Peter sits down with them. And it all seems to be going swimmingly well. And then suddenly, verse 56, the light of the fire comes up and a servant girl sees Peter's face in the firelight and says, this man was with him. This man was with the man that you just arrested and you're holding captive among us. Peter's anonymity is gone. 
He's being exposed for what he is. Do you ever feel like that as a Christian? That your anonymity as a Christian has been exposed? How does it feel? How do you react? Well, for Peter, now is the time that Satan's sifting begins. This is his test to try and undermine and to write off Peter. To write him off as a disciple and as the future head of Jesus' church. He'd managed it with Judas already. And here comes Peter's test and it takes the form of a public oral examination. The subject matter is simple. Peter's relationship with Jesus. It's a bit like, I don't know if you've uh, ever seen Mastermind on TV. It's a bit like uh, Peter's been placed in the uh, Mastermind contestant's chair. Or perhaps you might have seen Prime Minister's Question Times with the Prime Minister at the dispatch box in the House of Commons. All eyes are on him. And the examination isn't just for a, for a few questions over a few seconds, as it is in Mastermind, or for a few minutes at Prime Minister's Question Time. Peter's interrogation, because that's what it is. Well, it's at the hand of uh, three interrogators, and it lasts for at least an hour. The first is a woman, a servant girl, verse uh, 56. The second, verse 58, is a man. The third is another man, verse 59. And note just that little thing that Luke tells us at the beginning of verse 59, about an hour later. Another asserted. It's quite a long interrogation. Perhaps not the longest in history. Certainly not. And so we have this this servant girl's question or accusation that Peter was associated with Jesus. Peter's fearing the worst now. He's fearing that, well, association with Jesus might bring the the same fate as Jesus. Is that how you feel sometimes when someone says, you're a Christian, aren't you? Is that what you feel? And Peter denies Jesus. Woman, I do not know him. No relationship with Jesus at all. Well, Peter probably uh, breathed a sigh of relief at that stage. But then up steps a man. And he interrogates Peter next. Slightly more probing question this time about his relationship with Jesus. Verse 58. You also were one of them. You not only know Jesus, but you are part of his band. You go to Christ Church forward, don't you? You're a Christian. You're one of them, aren't you? Peter very quickly disassociates himself again from Jesus. He emphatically says, man, I am not. Is that how sometimes you feel? Is that sometimes how you answer? And then finally, verse 59, another man, uh, John in his account, in John chapter 18, verse 10, identifies this man as a relative of the man that uh, Peter chopped the ear off as Jesus was being arrested. If anyone might be able to identify Peter then Malchus, or at least his servant, might be able to. And this man emphatically says, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. May well have been Peter's distinctive accent that gave him away, because Galileans, like Scots, like Aussies, no offence to my colleagues, 
Like me, a southerner, we've all got our distinctive accents. And Peter's accent is very clearly from another place. It's from Galilee. Another piece of evidence that actually, Peter, you are one of them really, that he really was a disciple. And Peter's response is equally emphatic as the accusation. He says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 60. And with that, the cock crows. End of interrogation. It's a bit like the bleeper at the end of Mastermind. The contestant's time is up. They can get out of the chair. Or perhaps the speaker in announcing the end of Prime Minister's question time. The time is over. And so the cock signals the end of Peter's ordeal. Just if you remember, as Jesus said it would in verse 34, Peter has been sifted by Satan, just as Jesus said he would, verse 31. Peter has denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus said he would, verse 34. Now, on the, first, on the face of things, we might well want to put Peter down. We might want to sort of class him in the camp with Judas. A man whose faith has failed. And yet, we know from our third reading, it's so, so helpful to have that read tonight, wasn't it? That Peter does come through. His faith doesn't so much crumble and fail, but it stutters. A hiatus. I think there are a number of uh, valuable things that we can all learn from these verses, aren't there? First is obvious, let's not look down on Peter. Because the truth is that each of us who would call ourselves a Christian here tonight, we all, like him, stutter, don't we? If you're really honest with yourself, God knows that truth, but if you're honest with yourself, you stutter also. We were talking at our weekly preacher's lunch this week and each member of staff around the table admitted that we have all stuttered and denied our our relationship with Jesus. Whether that's perhaps keeping quiet when others speak ill of Jesus or when others accuse us of being a Christian or perhaps when other Christians stand up to be counted And we don't stand with them. Perhaps you've uh, taken someone along to a meeting, perhaps like the events that are happening this week at A Passion for Life Week, and someone like Frank Retief has faithfully explained the gospel. And the person you've taken along with you turns to you and says, you don't believe that, do you? You're not that naive, are you? We've all done it, haven't we? We've all choked at that moment. We fear that our allegiance to other Christians and our allegiance to Christ will send us to the same place of Christ. We've all been in situations like that. Even the strongest of us. It can be so easy, as as Paul reminded us at the beginning of our meeting tonight, it can be so easy for us to say, Lord, I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing to go to prison, even to die for you, just like Peter said in verse 33. It's easy to say that, isn't it? To believe that in a meeting like tonight's. It's easy to believe that in your youth group. It's easy to believe that in your student groups, in your home groups, in your small groups, wherever you meet as Christians. But, you know, it's another thing to do that 
and to say that and to act that way when we're surrounded not by followers of Christ but by enemies of Christ. Resisting peer pressure is tough, isn't it? You found it tough? I have. It's far harder than we can ever imagine. And you know what? The the first step to standing firm in, in faith rather than stuttering is being realistic, isn't it? It's seeing ourselves for who we are. Seeing our situation for what it is. You know, uh, no one wakes up in the morning and decides to be a serial denier of Jesus. Peter didn't do that that morning. It doesn't just happen overnight. It starts perhaps with a a wrong view of who Jesus is. Peter still hadn't got that uh, right view of Jesus. It also begins with a wrong view of ourselves and our own self-confidence, a bit like Peter. It goes on with our neglect of prayerlessness and dependence on God, just like Peter. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, pray so that you won't be tempted. Pray so that you will stand firm. Peter didn't. He thought he could still do it in his own strength. And it continues, doesn't it, with with the forgetfulness of the spiritual battle that we're in. Just like we saw when Jesus was arrested, the desire to fight it our way and not God's way with his weapons. It's what I often call the the salami effect. Uh, In these days when uh, salami comes pre-packed, you don't quite see it so easily. But uh, when you used to go into uh, a butcher shop and buy some salami, they'd put the massive great sausage onto the uh, slicing machine and they'd slice it before you. And uh, to start with, the salami would be about that sort of length and a few slices, you just wouldn't notice any difference. There'd be no difference in the length of the uh, salami sausage. But as they slice more and more and more and more, it becomes very obvious that that sausage that was once that long is now certainly a little bit shorter. The same is true for us as Christians. It starts with a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And very soon our faith in Jesus is stuttering along. We may feel strong, but actually it'll become very obvious very quickly that in fact we're we're stuttering, that our faith has been eroded bit by bit. Jesus knew that Peter wasn't as strong as he thought. That's why he warned him. He told him. That's why he probably called him Simon in the upper room rather than the name Peter. Not Cephas, the rock, but Simon, the stutterer. So a faith that stutters It's an experience that probably will happen for each one of us tomorrow, if not the next day or the next day after that. But before we give up, let's note second, let's note most importantly, the commitment of Christ. As the cock crows, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter had already come under the gaze of three people, his interrogators, Now he comes under the gaze of Jesus. Looks straight at him. He'd already evaded the conviction of his interrogators, but he cannot evade the conviction of his Lord. Listen to what goes on. Verse 61, second half. 
after Jesus has looked straight at Peter, then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the cock crows today, you will disown me three times. That look that Jesus gives Peter, we can, we can have a guess as to what it might be. It might be that look of conviction. might be a look of compassion. We can't be truly sure. But from Luke's words, we know certainly that it is one of commitment. One of commitment to his stuttering disciple, Simon. Because you see, it reminds Peter... It reminds Peter of the words that Jesus has already spoken to him, that we've heard read, that we've already looked at tonight. And it's at that very moment that Peter realises he's blown it. It's that look of Christ upon him. And he remembers those words of Jesus. I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You see, it does look as though it fails, But it doesn't, it stutters. Jesus' prayer is effective. His prayer has been answered. Peter does not fail. He stutters, but he does not fail. And that is down, that is down to the commitment of Jesus, the commitment to Christ. Do you see that? He knows what Peter will face. He prays for Peter. He knows that Peter will stutter, but he also knows that he will turn back because he has been praying for him. And yet, after all that, he wants Peter to play the part that he has in mind for him in his church. Isn't that the most amazing commitment? It's all about Christ. It's not about the stuttering disciple. It's about Jesus. Jesus is totally committed to the stuttering disciple. And that's you or me tonight, which it most certainly is for me. And if we're honest, it is for each one of us. That is great news, isn't it? That is commitment. Even when Jesus is surrounded by those who want to send him to his death, those who are sending him to be crucified upon a cross, Jesus, who is facing abandonment by his Father as he bears the sins of the world. You know, if that was you or me, I certainly wouldn't be thinking about somebody else. I'd be thinking about myself. But not Jesus. His commitment is 100%. Indeed, if there can be such a thing, it's 200%. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Jesus' commitment to you and to me, if you're a believer in him here tonight, is total. He knows what you and I will face tonight, tomorrow, this week, this month. He knows when we will be tempted to deny him before others. Maybe at an event this week that you bring somebody to. It may just be at work or at school. It may be at uni. But these words are just as true for us as they were for Peter. Just let me read you some uh, verses tonight. Don't bother turning to them, uh, because by the time I've read them, uh, you may not have got there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Just listen to these for a moment. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But more than that, listen to the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 31. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God, listen to this, and is also interceding for us. And then Hebrews 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, for you, for me, for Peter. That is great and encouraging words, isn't it? That is amazing. We're not in this alone, you know. Sometimes it feels as if we're alone as Christians, but we're not. Because Christ is 100, 200% with us. We may feel powerless, as we are, but Christ is not. We may stutter, and we will stutter, but Christ won't in his allegiance and commitment to us. We may be prayerless, but Christ will always pray for us. His prayers will not fail. And this means that uh, for us as Christians here tonight, we can stand firm in allegiance to him. The church can stand firm in proclaiming Christ because all of us will persevere to the end. Not because we're strong, but because of him because of him. And I hope and pray that that is something that makes you rejoice tonight. I hope that that is something that gives you great warmth and joy in your heart. That he is with us. He is praying for you and for me that we will not fail. You see, Jesus isn't like any sort of human ruler whose support is dependent on how much money or resources we give him or how much we have given attention to him or how loyal we may be to him, thank God he's not. Because otherwise we would be stuck. We'd be left high and dry, just like a government department that's overspent. No more money. We won't back you anymore. Instead, the reality is remarkably and graciously different. So that if you're someone here tonight, however young or old you may be, if you've acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God, if you've admitted if you've admitted you haven't and you don't always live his way, if you've admitted that you are a denier of him, whether that's something you've always done or you've been doing even today, for the first time, second time, third time, if you've asked Jesus to forgive you through what he did on the cross and if you've accepted him and continue to live with him as your king, then the commitment of Christ to you is total and absolute. And that is the Commitment that Peter experiences and knows as Jesus looks at him. And it's a commitment that you and I can and will know. As we deny him, we will feel his eyes upon us. But we must know that he is committed to us. And you know what happens next? It's that look from Jesus that brings a response from Peter. And that's where we turn and finally in these final moments we find the heart that regrets. The heart that regrets. It's over the page if you're uh, making notes. This is the response to knowing that Christ is committed to you. Just here, verse 62. 
And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Peter's regret that day led him to turning back in faith, just as Jesus said he would. He said, I've prayed that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, it culminated eventually in that interview that he would have with Jesus on the lake, beside the Lake of Galilee, that John recorded and we heard read earlier. And that regret was only possible when he was reminded of Christ's commitment to him. We will only come to Christ and say we're sorry if we are absolutely 100% certain that he will accept us. 100% certain of his commitment to us. Judas was full of remorse. He was miserable. But it didn't lead him back to the Lord. Peter wept bitterly. He felt a failure. He had been truly humbled. The words of Jesus came true. And as Jesus looked at him, he turned back. If you'd met Peter a few years after this event, he'd probably have said that uh, though it was one of the bitterest nights of his life, he thanked God for it. He would thank God for it every day. It brought him face to face with his own powerlessness and his total dependence upon Jesus. You know, that's been the experience of Christians throughout the centuries. That moments of great failure, you may be feeling a huge failure here tonight. You may be feeling that. But moments of great failure can and will lead through to times of great joy and of great fruit for him. If we are willing and ready to respond back again with regret. If we are ready and willing to respond in repentance. Whatever our circumstances tonight, whether we're somebody who stands with Christ or someone who has never done that, in Jesus we have someone who wants to forgive us the past, who wants to renew us in faith, who wants to empower and strengthen us by his Holy Spirit to live for him. In short, we have someone who not only wants us to, but enables us to live as a real Christian and who will help us to do that. And that begins with him and it then continues with our response to him as we bitterly recognise we have denied him and turned back in faith. Now that's something we all need to do, isn't it? Whether we're someone who would call ourselves a Christian or not, whether we're someone here who needs to do that for the first time of their lives. If you've never trusted Jesus before, if you've always denied him in your life, be under no illusions, he's longing for you to turn to him. And when you do, you will be not only reconciled with him for eternity, your sin will be paid for you so you don't have to pay for it in hell, but he will walk with you 100% committed every day of your life. He will ensure that he will give you and you will receive what he has promised because he is sovereign and he is in control. I guess most of us here tonight are Christians. Looking back, we see we've denied Jesus. You may have done it today. That we've stuttered. And we look ahead to this week, particularly this week, but it shouldn't be any different any other week. 
And we see a passion for life week and we're afraid of speaking up for Jesus. We know that we're going to stutter. Well, let's also look back at these verses and let's fall on our knees. Let's weep bitterly over the past of what we have done and let's remember that Jesus is committed to us. And then let's ask him, each one of us, to forgive us and to help us to grow in faith. That is the message of these verses. To give up denial and turn to him. Let's just take a moment of quiet, shall we? Let's pause a moment to think about how we're going to uh, respond to Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, you know all about us. You know how we live our lives. You know whether we believe in you and live for you. And yet we find ourselves denying you time and again. And you know too whether we've never lived for you and we've always denied you or been ambivalent to you. We thank you so much that in and through the Lord Jesus, you call us all to be your followers your children, whatever our past. Please forgive us for our denial of you. Please cleanse us. Please renew us. Please empower us and strengthen us to declare your name to a world that so desperately needs to know you, to hear about you and turn to you. Thank you that we don't live for you on our own. Thank you that you live in us by your spirit, that you pray for us, that you protect us, that you are our power in powerlessness. We ask all these prayers in your name, Lord Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.